Welcome to the MTB Tribe Podcast, your trail map for the world of mountain biking. And now, I'll introducing your host, Gareth Beckett. Howdy ho, mountain bikers, and welcome to episode number 40 of the MTB Tribe Podcast. Thanks for being here, and welcome to the show. If you're a first-time listener to the show, I'm here to help you find out more about mountain biking, how to get out on the trails, keep you stoked, and hopefully learn a little more about mountain biking and the people involved. So thanks for being here, and if you're a regular listener, or an occasional listener, thanks again for tuning in. I really do appreciate it. Now, I just wanted to give you a little update on my current situation. I have moved from the bonny old coastline of Northern Ireland to Malta. Yes, Malta. I'm going to be living here for the next couple of years. I've basically followed my fiance, who's landed a archaeology post over here. Katrina is an archaeologist and has been working out here for, well, on and off for a number of years. And uh, she's landed a really nice post out here. So we're going to be based here for a couple of years. And um, I can't complain. It's 29 degrees outside. It's board shorts. It's flip flops. You know, I know I know the weather's been nice over in Ireland recently, but dudes, this is nice. I'm loving it here. It's really cool. But don't worry, the podcast is going to keep going. It's going to be the same as usual. I'm going to be reporting on stuff from Ireland, from the UK, worldwide. Wherever I think there's an interesting story, I will try and bring it to you guys and try and update things for you guys on the podcast. So I maybe don't have my feet on the ground in Ireland but I'm certainly not leaving it astray and plus I'm actually meeting the guys from Malta that run the Malta mountain biking Facebook group and run all the the runs and the rides out here um, this weekend so that will be quite interesting I'll be able to bring you a wee bit more on what's happening out in Malta here because the climate is amazing the trails are good here you know they have XC races, they have enduro races, they have downhill races. Okay, they maybe don't have massive downhill sections, but from what I see, I haven't got out on a bike yet, but from what I see, it is pretty good. So that'll be quite interesting. So stay tuned for them shows, folks. They will be cool. I'm, I'm excited about getting out on the trails and seeing what Malta has to offer so I can let you guys know because it's cheap to get out here, fellas. It's 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 cheap to get get your butt out in Malta, I must say. So you can have a cheap holiday out here um, and you're always assured of the, of the weather, which is cool. But more on that in the future. Um, now, on to today's show. On episode 40, it is great to get Hannah the founder and owner of Flair Clothing on the show. Now, you probably have heard of Flair Clothing. It's been about, it's it's really doing well. And, um, you know, there's plenty of interest in it. You'll see plenty of guys on the trails wearing it. And Hannah started Flair Clothing in 2013. And the brand has went from strength to strength, even winning the Total Women's Cycle Award for Best Mountain Bike Clothing 2016. Now, that's no mean feat, taking on the big players such as Fox, etc. So Hannah, you know, has done really well. And then she went on, she introduced a men's range in 2014 and used a Kickstarter campaign to help fund this. Very interesting. We chat about how Hannah started Flair with the help of her master's degree, believe it or not, and how Flair has grown to a full-time lifestyle business for Hannah. So we chat about that. We chat about how Flair beat the likes of Fox Clothing to win that MTB Clothing Award. Why Hannah changed from a UK manufacturer. The relationship between Hannah and her suppliers. 
the time Hannah spends running Flare, etc. It's all good stuff. So if you're interested in UK brands, you're interested in maybe doing something like this yourself or maybe supporting the likes of Flare, a UK brand, this is the episode for you. So folks, tune in, put your feet up, listen to it in the way they work, however it helps. If it chills you out, sweet. If you're falling asleep to it, awesome. I do that with a couple of podcasts. It's pretty cool. Thanks for being here, folks. Enjoy the show and let's welcome Hannah to the MTV Tribe podcast. Hello, Hannah. Welcome to the MTV Tribe podcast. How's things with you today? Good, thanks. How are you? I am very good. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks so much for coming on the podcast today with us and uh, sharing your stories about flair clothing. It's very exciting to have a UK brand, a clothing brand. Um, So thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you're very welcome. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, and it's cool. You know, like I've seen your stuff about, I've seen it online and, and some of the guests I've had on the show have chatted about it a bit and, and stuff like that. And um, and when I looked more into your brand, you have a lot going on there. You have a lot of stuff there. <laughs> So, um, so thanks so much. So it was it was good to get you know good to get you on because I, I wanted to chat to you about it because you seem to be one of the bigger UK players, if if that's fair to say. Well, I'm glad you think so. That's, like, that's the impression <laughs> that we uh, we're working towards. <laughs> Brilliant, that's cool. Um, so I'll put um, I'll put the links and stuff like that to your website and how people can get in contact in the show notes, so uh, people can check that out when they want to and and maybe get in contact via that way. Yeah, brilliant. Cool. But first, let, let's chat a wee bit about you um, and just get a wee bit about about your background. So when were you introduced to mountain biking, or how did you get introduced to mountain biking? So I went on a um, on an off road trip with my mum, dad and sister to Jordan and it was a sort of semi-slick trip so we were on kind of basically pretty crappy mountain bikes Mm -hmm. so they were rubbish on the road and then rubbish off the road Um, (laughs) a happy balance of the two but um, it was and it was only kind of gravel paths or essentially the equivalent of fire roads but it was absolutely brilliant and when we got back um I lived in Nottingham at the time and me my mum and my sister went to Sherwood Pines and rented some bikes went around the red route and immediately then went and bought our own bikes um yeah, it was brilliant. I was working at a bike shop at the time. Oh. So we bought our mountain bikes, and then immediately after I bought myself a hardtail, um, the bike shop I was working at that's no longer around, unfortunately, um, got in a really, really fancy, or I thought really, really fancy women's full suspension bike. So I basically never used the bike that I bought because uh, I just used the demo one all the time. Um <laughs> And then just started going for bike rides with the uh, guys at the shop. And then I met my now husband, who was a customer, and downhiller and racer and all that sort of stuff. So it just sort of, I got a little taster before, and then it all took off, really. 
Yeah, so that's interesting. So you worked in a bike store, but you never really ventured into the mountain bike side of things. Did you? Yeah. Road, did you go on the road bikes or anything like that? Or yeah, and I did some like kind of light touring. I did the coast to coast um, before again with my mum, my dad, and my sister. Um, we did this trip in Jordan, and then just generally going for bike rides, I guess. In when we're on holiday or when we're at home, kind of just family biking. Yeah. So, 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 and I'm, I'm used to going for a long bike ride. So these, um, so it was strange then going to mountain biking, going for like 15 miles or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Here's here's a, a quick question for you. When you get into mountain biking and when you started to ride mountain bikes, did you think that helped you in the store sell product better? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it well, it just gives you more kind of credibility if it's if they're products that you use and products that you rate, and especially being the only female member of staff, it gives you um, it it gives customers a level of trust. I mean, whether they're female or male. If they're actually um, getting advice from, from someone who's in the same situation, I think it makes a really big difference. Yeah, you probably come across a bit more confident in, in what you're talking about and, and stuff like that. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, cool. And did you see many, you know, were, were the guys in the store, were they like pushing all the female customers onto you? Was that the way it normally happened? Pretty much. I mean, that's why I, um, I think was that's why I was employed in the first place, really, to be a kind of approachable female member of staff. I mean, it, th- this was in 2012, so it was definitely the women's scene or the women's bike community mm-hmm. was way, way, way less developed than it is at the moment. And what and and this was a very kind of like old school bike shop. So there, I mean, I, I, and I think that this is the right the right way to tackle it. Their way of kind of encouraging female customers and making sure that they're getting the right information and making sure that they're not um, put off by a maybe intimidating environment or um, male bike geeks staring at them when they come into the shop is to have um a friendly female face yeah well i think that would work (laughs) yeah yeah i think that it's i think it makes sense and there's no reason why there shouldn't be women working in yeah all the bike shops yeah well it's all down to experience you ride product you use product and and i suppose then you can give your your advice you know, tell the girls coming in the store and stuff. So, yeah, yeah, happy days. Yeah, I think so. Good. So where's your local trails at now then, Hannah? Well, now I moved from flat Nottingham last year to very hilly Sheffield, which is brilliant. <laughs> so the local trails to us are Lady Cannings, um, Blackamoor, and then the Peak District. So there's just all sorts of stuff right from the doorstep, which can't really complain at that yeah and when you how long did you move there um just over a year ago all right okay and have you seen your ability improve a lot because you're on maybe steeper terrain um 
Somewhat. I'm much more... I mean, we rode in the Peak District quite a lot beforehand because it's still relatively close. Yeah. Um, And I've ridden a lot in Scotland. And I'm definitely more comfortable on rocky, rocky terrain. And that's continued now. So in the peaks, there's a lot of kind of dry river bed kind of trails where the rock's quite loose. Um, And I really enjoy those. Um, I'm not great at steep, rooty, loamy, scary corners. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think any of us are. (laughs) Classic. So what's the scene like there in Sheffield, Hannah? Is it a good scene? Oh, it's massive. Um, There's loads of trail advocacy groups so ride sheffield um is a big one peak district mtb and they kind of um around those groups a massive community community has been developed and then i think there's loads going on with the university with the two universities as well and you just see people riding all over the place which is amazing um all the way down to like tiny little kids um, and the fact that we've got custom built not custom built like specifically built purpose built that's the word that I'm looking for mm. purpose built trails what five miles from the city center um, that are all smooth rollable um, it's places where people can, uh, this is Lady Cannings, um, it's a place where people can really um, just start out and it's fun for absolute beginners and really, really tiny little kids to kind of try it out, see if they like it. But then it's really, really fun for much more experienced riders and everyone in between. Um, so I just think it's a, I mean, this is why we moved to Sheffield. It's just a great place to ride meet people who who ride and be in a kind of mountain bike lifestyle if you like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. sounds pretty awesome to be fair <laughs> 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 and it's good that there's kids getting introduced to it because any kind of sport or anything that needs that younger generation coming up to to support it through the years so yeah absolutely yeah that that's great very good and do you ride with many friends hannah um, I don't. I haven't recently. I I am not someone who loves massive groups. Um, I much prefer riding with like a couple of better friends. Um, you you get to chat to them a bit more. You kind of all know where you're at, ability wise, or um, what trails you're gonna do. Um, it's yeah i i wish i i do wish that i liked riding in massive groups more but um i just prefer one-on-one mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> a little bit more but then it's nice because you get to kind of um spend time with all different friends if you go out all with different people mm-hmm. all the yeah. time which is nice yeah, no, I think that's the nice thing. One of the nice things about mountain biking, you can do that. You know, you can go up the mountain yourself to get away from everything and have a bit of headspace or, or yeah, you can sure. meet up with a number of mates and, and go out for a blast. So, no, it's good. It's very good. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, cool. <laughs> now, let's talk a wee bit then about flare clothing and yeah. um, how that all started and things like that. So tell us a wee bit about flare clothing uh, and what it is you do there just briefly. 
So um, Flair is a mountain bike clothing brand. Um, we make some lifestyle clothing as well, but and some road clothing, but predominantly lifestyle, uh, predominantly mountain bikes. Sorry, and our kind of niche is that in my head, it's a little bit more casual than a lot of the clothes you might get out on the market. It looks a little bit it. Well, some of the jerseys look look a bit more like your normal clothes. Um, I think we use pretty interesting colorways, pretty interesting graphics um, that are just a bit different from your your big players, really. Um, and I think that what's interesting about us and what's unique about us is that across our entire range, we have a completely balanced um collection of male and female stuff so same number of colorways same same number of models same size range um it's all exactly equal mm-hmm. uh which i don't know uh many other brands that where that's the case mm-hmm. yeah and um looking at your stuff it is very very nice and there seems to be a lot of people wearing it on the trails and stuff when you when you're looking at images and your your social feeds and things like that but how did you initially get the idea for flare clothing was it through working in the store and seeing the fashion coming in how what sparked that idea with you i couldn't find any kit i wanted to wear <laughs> um I'm from, is so, I'm, so I'm, many I'm girls from, say that yeah yeah so I'm from a product design background right, cool. I'm working in the shop. So I think that there's companies of, or bike brands have now seem to be coming to the conclusion that it's not necessary for women specific bikes. And I think that, I think that there's an argument for both. I've ri- I've ridden a women specific bike in the past. I used to have a Juliana Rubion now I have a unisex bike. Uh, I've got a transition smuggler now, and I think that there's strong arguments for both. But in clothing, in general life, our clothing is gendered. You buy men's or women's jeans because they fit differently, or they've got different um, functions, um, or you buy a male or female t-shirt because the designs are different or the colors are different and it doesn't matter which you buy but clothing just is a gendered product and people look for a gendered product when they're buying clothing so i think that for us introducing a women's um option back then in 2013 or yeah 2013 um was necessary and i think that the well a lot of women were happy wearing men's kit and didn't want um stuff that was overtly feminine a lot of women did and a lot of women including myself felt didn't necessarily feel like themselves when they were riding their bike because yeah that's what clothing does clothing is is expressive of your personality and that if you can't find that then you don't feel as good about yourself and therefore you don't ride as good or you don't um, have as much confidence or there's a whole host of different reasons. And then alongside the kind of normal complications of fit and stuff Mm. like that. Yeah, that's a very interesting point because now the listeners are going to be sick of hearing me saying this. 
because it's <laughs> almost every ex- episode. But um, my fiance, who's been mountain biking a couple of years now, she still wears her normal, you know, like running clothes or something out in the yeah. bike because she said that she didn't want to look like a 15 year old boy. Yeah. And I can totally understand with what you're saying if you're not wearing clothes that you would normally wear. Um, yeah. You know, so it does make a big difference when you're on the trails, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, mountain biking is such a mental sport. I I really, really, really struggle with confidence. And when I'm feeling good, that's great. I can ride all sorts of stuff. But if I'm not feeling my best or not feeling it or I've had um, like um, some sort of other problem in the day that's completely unrelated but that's really um, – playing on my mind I just don't feel strong or capable or I just don't feel like I can tackle that big rock garden in front of me or whatever it might be mm-hmm. yeah no it's a good point to make and <clears throat> I think it's something that you know a lot of the other companies don't look at it that way really um, or maybe yeah, they can't it, look at it that way I yeah don't I don't know maybe it is because it's just it I mean it's pretty much just me um, on a day-to-day basis. So I'm the one who, I mean, I, I it, this is the sort almost the definition of a user, user-centered design or a user-centered company because I'm a user of all of these products. I'm a, I'm a user of, I'm my, I'm my customer. So if I'm making stuff that I like, there must be other people who are in the same position. Yeah, definitely, I would say so. And and that's a good way to look at it. So you started the ladies' brand first, and then you introduced a man's uh, section of it as well just shortly yeah. after. Yeah, in 2014. Okay. Um, basically because men asked for it. They kept wow. saying, oh, are these pink shorts for men? <laughs> well, you can wear them if you want. <laughs> Might be a bit tight. <laughs> Um, and so we introduced the men's stuff on a Kickstarter campaign. Oh, right. Okay. Very good. Yeah. Brilliant. And that that's interesting because I was talking to Cranked Magazine guys, um, <laughs> say up there, the, the editor at Cranked, and they've yeah. done the same. Yeah. Um, so how did you find that experience? I thought it was great. Um, there's all sorts of really interesting uh, statistics uh, around Kickstarter campaigns, and a lot of them – are to do with sort of if you achieve 20% of your funding in the first 24 hours, or I, I don't remember what it is exactly, but if you achieve this small amount in the first small amount of time, mm-hmm. you'll be the the statistics are that they'll it'll be successful. And we found, it, I mean, we didn't go mass, we didn't go wildly over our target. I mean, we were pr- we we pretty much were close to our target, and so it was pretty dramatic <laughs> in those final days seeing whether we were going to make it or not mm-hmm. um but I, I i mean i think it's a really good platform to actually i mean it costs us a lot more than whatever the um kickstarter target was to actually introduce all of that clothing mm-hmm. uh, it means that you've got a decent chunk of it going out the door um you've got customers already you've got um a small amount of marketing because you're already on the kickstarter website um i thought it was a really 
like great and easy um, platform to use. And it, it, it doesn't eliminate all the risk because obviously we had to buy a lot more product than we actually sold through it. It eliminates some of the risk in that 800 jer- jerseys don't arrive and you've only sold one. Yeah, wow. So you get some going out the door straight away, which is nice. Yeah, cool. So just tell us how that kind of works then. So somebody um, signs up to the Kickstarter thing. They, do they donate, obviously, money to your campaign and say, no, yes, they will buy, buy a product? or They just buy a product. So oh. it's essentially a pre-order system. Um, Kickstarter, as far as I'm aware, you can't just give money for nothing. Um, there needs to be an incentive. So um, I think our smallest, uh, maybe they call it a reward. I can't remember what they call it. Mm-hmm. But our smallest amount was £5, and I think that that was like some stickers and something like that. But then um, we essentially used it as a discounted pre-order system. So we had different bundles of kits. So maybe there was the sticker thing, and then there was a jersey, shorts, jersey and shorts t-shirt and then there were some people who ordered basically every product and that was in a bundle and everything was 40 percent off retail and so it's a benefit for the customer because they're getting a big nice discount um although they have to wait for some time to receive it but that's the kind of trade-off and then it's a benefit for the brand because you've got immediate customers yeah, no, that's very, very good. It almost validates the idea for you in a way. Yeah, exactly. You get, I mean, it's also marketing. Um, you're out there on a platform on a platform that has millions of viewers um, who are looking at your product, and maybe it, maybe the stuff that you're not, maybe the stuff that you're selling in that campaign isn't right for them. But then, if they like what you're about, maybe they'll come back and um, get something in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. Um, so that's good. That that's brilliant. So that helps you launch the men's then. But yeah. when you launched the ladies' side of things, um, mm-hmm. did you just fund that yourself? Yeah, from inheritance. Right. So uh, anyone looking to get into clothing, it's expensive. Yeah, <laughs> certainly. Yeah. Because you have to buy product to sell product. If you're providing a service. You don't have an initial outlay necessarily. If you're a like, I don't know. If you provide sports massage, what you're selling is your skill, and that doesn't necessarily cost you much apart from a table or something. But if you're buying, if you're selling clothing, you need to buy the clothing to begin with. Yeah, and and I think when people see it, they don't really see the full story because if you have one top there. And you break that down into colours and then you break mm-hmm. it down into sizes. Yeah. All of a sudden, to have a decent a depth of range of stuff, yeah. you need to be buying so much product. Yeah. So we have um, – we only have two different models of jerseys this year in our – we've got two men's jerseys and two, fem- two uh, women's jerseys. Both of those are available in two colours – and each of those four colorways are available in seven sizes. Mm. So suddenly, um, two jerseys, uh, <laughs> it becomes quite a lot of jerseys. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, and you know, it, it's the old scenario: how many do you buy of each piece? Because you don't yeah. want you don't want people going on your website and when they click on stuff, out of stock, out of stock, out of stock, because then they're just like, I'm over this, and they go yeah. somewhere else. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, so it's it's hard. You need that depth of stock, and I'm sure yeah. it's a fine balance. Yeah, and I always thought that retail was a bit, you, you know, like looking into a crystal ball. Oh. You know, to get your stock. Absolutely. Quantities, <laughs> and you know, you're kind of, you're kind of gambling on what people want. Yeah. Um. So, how do you go about your stock levels and stuff like that? Is it a difficult process, or? Um, well, I think that now, I have quite a good, sort of inherent understanding of what sells. Um, but also we've got information from previous years. So last year, uh, for example, we didn't order enough women's size 10s. So this year I've upped that. Um, and last year we ordered too many men's XLs and not enough men's mediums. So we tweaked that when I ordered stuff for this year. So it's just kind of general tweaks. And then just kind of knowing our customers um i have a i think yeah i think i've got a good sense of what is going to sell well so we've got a men's we've got uh, a men's jersey that we introduced this year that i knew women were going to like as well and so i ordered a few more of the uh, smaller sizes in that jersey and i was right that jersey's been selling incredibly well i think we've we only received them a couple of months ago and we've only got three mediums left or something like that it's been it's been incredible but so i think it's a combination of just having the statistics from before but also knowing our customers yeah no happy days i think knowing your customer and what they want is so important rather than just creating product and hoping that it sells yeah yeah, I think so too. Yeah, so Flair won a, won a clothing award. Can you tell us a wee bit about that? Um, so it was in 2016. Yes, 2016. We won the award from Total Women's Cycling for Best Mountain Bike Clothing, um, which was really great because, I mean, even in, even personally, I never win anything. So it was amazing to win something. And it was actually, and it was amazing. It was a redevoted award. So it was incredible to win something. Um, again, like based on our customers and based on merit. Um, when we were up against some really like big companies, we were up against Fox, Troy Lee, all the big guys. And um, the, the, yeah, the fact that the customers voted for us was awesome. That's amazing. Mm, yeah. Wow, you must have been really stoked on that. I was, and I've made a real, like, ass of myself because uh, I was really, like, flabbergasted. And I think <laughs> had to make a little speech, and I was, I stumbled a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and was that, did you have to go to an award ceremony and stuff like that? And- it was at the cycle show, so it was part of the whole um, program of events that the, the cycle show at the NEC. So um, it was just only it was just a small kind of small audience, but it was really nice. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. 
awesome that, that is brilliant very very good so let's let's backpedal a wee bit now mm-hmm. um and i just want to ask you you know when you got the initial idea for for flare clothing and the ladies side of it how did you move forward from that what what did you actually do first to get the the ball rolling and get things started well i had done a master's degree um when i was sort of working at the shop, I was becoming interested in the whole concept of female-specific products. And I was interested in whether we could, or whether there was a way to introduce um, aftermarket components that would help to make a unisex bike less kind of intimidating looking or less aggressive looking and maybe more... um, familiar um and through all my research which was all the way from very novice riders to world cup level riders and everyone in between everyone said that clothing was the thing that was going to make a difference so i started looking at that and this became this was my master's um dissertation research project and so i started looking at clothing i started designing some um, pieces. I I designed a logo. I designed a bit sort of packaging and swing tags and a kind. And essentially, I ended up designing a brand. Um, and a masters runs or my masters ran from October to October. So you still work through the summer. Mm-hmm. And in the March, my, I hadn't said to anyone what my intentions were but in the march my supervisor said to me you're thinking about making this a real brand aren't you and i said yeah i think i am (laughs) um so before the end of uh, before having graduated my master's from that point it kind of validated the fact that yeah i was gonna i'm gonna do this and so i just started doing more and more and it became much bigger than my master's so I started looking for manufacturers. I started um, getting in touch with mountain bike media. I started researching how to uh, incorporate a business, uh, what I needed to do for the accounts, what stock I needed to make, what I needed to make a website. So before I had even graduated, the company was incorporated. I had been speaking to manufacturers, and we had an a article up on single track hmm. um so as a result of that i did got a really really good grade in my masters but i had also uh <laughs> i had also started the brand um and then i just carried on essentially wow well that that's very intelligent to do that so you use your time <laughs> for your masters to actually market your brand yeah, efficient <laughs> wow yeah that's awesome to anybody out there that's thinking that's the way to do it <laughs> You know, don't work into the long hours of the evening and into the night. Just do it when you're doing your degree or your master's. Degree work, exactly. Yeah, brilliant. So let's talk about manufacturers then, because I think that's quite a difficult side of the of the industry, anybody that's trying to do something like this. Um, how did you go about sourcing manufacturers? Um, well, what I would not recommend is Googling British clothing manufacturers because I did that and I ended up getting defrauded. Oh, so really? that is not something that I would recommend. 
Um, what I what I did do is um, through the university, I was part of the business incubator, and there was um, an agent there essentially. So an agent puts people like me in touch with factories, um, and we worked with them for a few years, which was great. And then we we decided that we wanted to move. We did. We we weren't happy with the level of technicality that the British factories were mm-hmm. providing. So the jerseys were great. We had absolutely no problems with the jerseys. Customers loved them. But mountain bike shorts are a difficult beast because yeah. they use very stiff fabrics in combination with stretchy fabrics. And so it's all really quite difficult um, construction. And we spoke to the fabric company and the fabric company said, yeah, basically you need to go to Portugal um, Mm. because they have different – the factories in some ways are more advanced – and able to kind of cope with these more technical fabrics. So um, that's what we did. So in 2016, we moved all of our production to Portugal, uh, which ended up being about the same price, maybe very, very marginally cheaper. Um, But we could be much more in control of the quality, which was Mm -hmm. Yeah, certainly. And did you find working with them guys easier or more difficult? Was there was the language a barrier or anything like that? Or um, I, it wasn't easier or more difficult because of the language. Uh, we had some we had problems with kind of process. So I didn't know how they worked, and they didn't know how I worked. So we had some teething problems in 2016, and all of the men's jerseys were absolutely minuscule. Uh, So we had problems in terms of that, but not so much with language because so many, I mean, textiles, I think, are Portugal's third biggest export. So, so many people speak English. You work with an agent anyway, and our agent is brilliant. And they're very much set up for export they're not they're they're kind of we have one factory who's very 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 detail orientated and so if there's any tiny tiny doubt in their mind they'll check which i'm not very detail oriented so i kind of say oh i don't care if the logo is five five millimeters smaller than what i say just but really, it's a great thing that they do check because it means that they're um, making sure you're happy with everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So just take us through how the process works. So if you get an idea for a jersey, how does that work then as far as getting that to a manufacturer <laughs> stage? Yeah. So now we're, now we're lucky or we're as far enough into the process where we're happy with our the kind of fundamental shape of our jersey. Um, we like the fit, we like the kind of neck 
line. Um, so we, we essentially have that as a pattern with the factory. If we wanted to develop a new one, so a different sleeve, a different fit, we would take that original one and ask them to change it in certain ways, send them new measurements of how we would want how we would want it. Um, I then send them graphics and they make up uh, samples with my graphics for us to approve. I might change the placement of them. I might change some of the colours if the colours don't print as I envisage them. And so we can go through this sample process and comment process several times until we're happy with them. Then we get a set of prototypes or we get a set of, yeah, samples, salesman samples, um, which is called a collection. Um, and they're kind of as they would be produced, kind of mm. brand new, perfect. And we get maybe one of each size there and then we can check all the sizes are right. We can send them off to press before all the production's made. Um, once they're approved, they start with the production. And sometimes that takes quite a long time because they need to order fabric. But if we know that we're happy with the um, fabric or the fit and all that we need to tweak is the colours, we can order the fabric at the very beginning of the process. And then the production actually only maybe takes a few weeks, three, four weeks. Um, and then it's all loaded onto a forwarder and driven here. Wow. So, yeah, it can take a long time to get all yeah. that organised and sort of. Yeah. And, you know, I think for me coming from a, a fashion background and stuff like that, I, I know that we were always kind of working about eight or nine months in advance. Mm -hmm. Is that the same with yourself? Um, that is what we should do, but I'm not very good at that. And so I always feel like we're <laughs> trying to catch up. So probably we're working six months in advance. Yeah. It, it's still it's still it difficult to do better. it would cause a lot less stress for me if i was earlier <laughs> and if i did yeah. it a year in advance yeah it, it's difficult though to do isn't it because you know you're all your new summer gears coming out but yet you are working on next year's yeah. autumn or winter stuff yeah <laughs> and it can be a real spaghetti junction in the mind it's, you know um I know I've I've experienced that myself, um, so it's not as easy as you know ringing up and saying yeah I'll, I'll have a hundred more of them jerseys. Yeah, and, exactly. you know that. Yeah. Um, so, also, if you're um, because I am doing everything, I need to be I need to be promoting and um, really really excited about the stuff that's just arrived, so so that I can sell it. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I need to be thinking about the next year's stuff so it's kind of where to put to put all of your enthusiasm into design or into sales which is actually what you need to get in order to order the next stuff anyway so it's a funny balance yeah it, it certainly is and it's it's kind of hard it's kind of in the same way as musicians, you know, if if a musician brings out a song and it's so popular, they have already rehearsed that song and played that song hundreds of times. Mm -hmm. 
And I think the fashion industry is a wee bit the same where you're trying to be excited and promote certain products, but you've been working on that product for six or eight months. Yeah. You know, and at that time when you're trying to promote that, you're now working a new product. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, it, it's not easy. It's not easy. <laughs> but then you get um, a little bit of a, of a relief when you then flip between all the different activities. So it's, it's good. It's good as well. It's yeah. doing but good. <laughs> yeah, totally. So I want to ask you something um, because you're you're so in contact with the manufacturers yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in your industry there, do they come to you? Does the factories come to you and say, Hannah, we've got this new material. Do you want to look at it? The agent does. Okay. Um, well, actually, no, that's different. The fabric, we get all of our shorts, shorts fabric independently from the factory. So that's all from a, from a, a technical fabric company in Italy and they do come to us and show us their new collections and new styles and everything with the factories um it's more our agent who says oh this is something that the factory could make for you that's something that the fab- factory could make for you um and then once a year we'll go to Portugal and visit the factories we work with visit the factories that could do something new, talk, talk, talk about the different products that we'd like to make. Um, and so that's quite exciting, seeing what, what what's possible, really. But the factories are all pretty specialists. So, um, so you'll go somewhere for knitwear or somewhere for outdoor jackets that need tape seams and stuff like that. Yeah, so many. how many different factories would you be working with, do you think? Um, we were working with three last year, plus the um, fabric company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's not as easy as a one-stop shop. No. <laughs> <laughs> if only. <laughs> yeah, if only. If only we had a little... Uh, um, well, if only we had a factory ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that would be that would well that would just that's cause great. more headaches <laughs> <laughs> um, so brilliant um and that's really exciting that you're going out to portugal and stuff and i'm sure you look forward to going out to the factories and 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 seeing the guys out there and it, oh, i suppose yeah. it builds more of a network more of a connection with them yeah absolutely it's really good and you kind of have dinner afterwards and talk about all sorts of stuff both um kind of work wise and in the wider clothing industry so it's really um it's a nice visit it's not something that i dread at all mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's definitely something to look forward to yeah and is your agent uk or based or is he from portugal no we don't have an agent in the uk anymore we um right. stopped using them and then we moved and when we moved to portugal um and, but we use various printers in the uk but they're kind of I'll work with them directly. Um, right, okay. So is that for screen printing and stuff Yeah, like for T-shirts and stuff that needs screen printing, yeah. Yeah, okay. So it you're, is. Balancing, you're balancing a lot of balls there. That's crazy. <laughs> um, so let's talk a wee bit about your team. So you, uh, you design the stuff and all yourself, but you do have a few people that are helping you, don't you? No. No? Not in design. Wow. Okay. So <laughs> the only person, the only person that um, 
the only other person that works for Flair is my husband, and he works on a part-time basis, um, mainly at events. So he'll help, uh, you know, when we're at a race. So this weekend we're going to Fort William World Cup. He'll be working there. But all the rest of the time, it's pretty much just me. Right, wow. So (laughs) that's amazing. So you design, you decide what products you're going to sell. Yeah. Um, You're obviously involved from the start to the finished product. Yeah. Um, wow, like that's, we don't that's use a warehouse anymore, so I post everything. Right, so you do okay, so you get the <laughs> stuff delivered to your house, do you? Um, now we do. Well, now we've got a PO box, but we were mm-hmm. use it. We were using a warehouse, but we just thought this summer we'll kind of streamline a little bit. Yeah, no, it makes sense. But you're physically packing the product and yeah. posting it. <laughs> yeah. Checkers, I've got about 10 MTB Tribe jerseys to post off to customers, and that, that's freaking me out. <laughs> well, also, I know I know what things uh, I know what things weigh. I know what fits in a large letter bag. It's just uh, efficient if I do it. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, I like being in control. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, a lot of entrepreneurs do, and they, they find it hard to let go of certain things. Um, Right. Okay. I want to ask you about. Do you, have you ever heard of a, of a? I won't call it a company, but of, of a, proce- a process called um, Teespring. No. Teespring. Teespring. It's like it's like where you can people can go on and buy your product and it doesn't ship until a certain amount of. Ah uh, yes, are yes, shipped. I do know. Yep. Have you heard of that? Yeah. Why did Why did you decide to outlay a lot of money and, and get a lot of product rather than going down that route? Um, well, we do do we do have a whole custom side of the business, which is that which is custom jerseys for teams, t-shirts, club for clubs, or we've got some people at the moment who are interested in getting some custom jerseys for a birthday present. We've had some bike shops get custom jerseys, and that is exactly that. We don't. Yeah. Cool. We don't um, do anything until uh, the invoice is paid uh, or, you know, there's a deposit paid. But when, but with, with T-shirts, it's pretty simple. You can, if you've got a print shop set up, which isn't massively expensive, you can send, you can print and send T-shirts as they, as the orders come in. With jerseys and shorts, you can't really do that. Um, and if you, I think that the whole marketing side is a lot more. There's just a lot more risk involved, or not risk involved. There's a lot more marketing involved in actually like collecting that order. And then on a small run of jerseys you won't make that much margin on them. So mm-hmm. you need to be making much bigger quantities uh, to actually make the margin to sell it at a normal price. Yeah, um, yeah. In which case, Economies you're ordering, scale, that you're ordering kind of hundreds thing. anyway. So mm-hmm. you may as well offer them um, by the odd one. It would be a lot, a lot, um, a lot less kind of less risky but I don't think that just me that I could actually generate those orders necessarily mm-hmm. or generate enough orders to make up for the margin. 
Yeah, yeah. So also, no, we don't have any equipment. We've got a heat press here, but if we if we had so um, we don't have any resources to actually make those. Uh, all of our custom orders we outsource to a factory in Sutton in Ashfield, near Mansfield. Um, but if say we had a small factory in the garden, we could do that. But it's just not really. Um, we've not got the resources essentially. No, and it sounds like you're doing enough anyway, as it is. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah of course. <laughs> uh, I'm not, I'm not bored. <laughs> yeah, crazy, <laughs> crazy. Uh, so it does sound like you're wanting to open a factory, though. But um, <laughs> we'll I'll, 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 <laughs> I'll maybe edit that bit out so your husband doesn't hear that. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> um, so how do you work out your pricing structure and stuff like that Hannah? you don't have to tell us specifics but do you produce a product um say an okay and say it, it costs x amount to produce do you then just add on what margin you need to make a to make a profit from that how do you work that out we generally work it back from the other way so we generally right. set a retail price first based on what's in the market what we think is a comparable product and then we work backwards and see what we can sell it for at trade and then what we can sell it for at, uh, and, then, and then whether the cost um, mm-hmm. that we pay is in the, is too much. And then we can go back and forth kind of balancing it until we get somewhere that's about right. Um, so if... Uh, X competitor is selling a jersey at 50 quid we think well yeah we think that our jersey is just as good as that one but maybe we're but we've got enough margin to drop it a little bit and then that's a kind of incentive to come to us a really little brand instead of going with a kind of tried and tested um brand that you that someone might bought from before yeah and do you see that? Do you, do you see people going away from the bigger brands and and maybe you know going to a homegrown brand as such? Yeah, I think I'm. I think so. I think that um, I think that people are always willing to try new things, especially when we are at events and people can see the products in person. Um, I think that people are less willing or more cautious of trying new things when it's online, which is a shame because that's where most of our business comes from. But it's difficult to take, it's it's difficult to capture what the product properly looks like and feels like and fits like in just a photograph. Whereas if we see people at events and they can feel the fabric, try them on, um, have a chat with us, um, I think that, they are much more likely to kind of take a punt and then, and that's worked always really well for us in the past. Those customers that buy from us at events often turn, turn into our much longer term customers. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and they'll purchase offline or yeah. online. Then yeah, from exactly. You. Cool. So is your customer base uh, mainly UK or, or are you seeing customers coming from elsewhere? It's mainly, UK but we get we have had customers from all over the place I had I had uh, an order from Iceland not long ago we've had orders from Bali um, we've had orders from Mexico Colombia yeah. we get a wow. decent amount from the US 
Um, a decent amount from Italy, France, quite a few from Scandinavia. Yeah, all over the place, really. But mainly. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, that's good. Um, you know, because you're being found there and it kind of, yeah. it's nice. It's nice that you're being found online yeah, and stuff. Yeah, something we're doing is working. <laughs> yeah yeah so i know you designed the website and all yourself um yeah <laughs> hi so you really do and, and you have a journal <laughs> section and stuff on there as well um do you find that very time consuming on the website um the journal or just yeah. website in general uh the journal more more getting not you know, really um, so yeah. our ambassadors um now that we're kind of making a push on the journal our ambassadors are contributing loads of content so i try and put two journal articles every every week and it's been running for maybe the last three months and i think i've maybe only missed one week um which i think is pretty good going um and on there there's all sorts of content from the ambassadors like race reports um road trips um what kit they like, um, their plans for the summer. I'm trying to think. I I would like, it might end up being tomorrow, but I wanted to write one about kind of van life because we're off to, it's sort of the first big weekend of the year um, event-wise for us. So we'll be staying in the camper van uh, at Fort William. And so I thought I'd write, write something about van life, what we cook, what we mm-hmm. eat what we drink which invariably just ends up being a lot um <laughs> so it's, it's sort of about all sorts of stuff which i think is quite nice i don't know how many people really read it but i think it keeps content fresh on the website it means that the ambassadors can kind of contribute a little bit more than than they have done before and be kind of involved in in the brand a bit more which I think it's nice for me because I don't need to write that many things, but um, I hope it's nice for them as well. See their see their photos and their words online. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I, I think that's cool. It makes them feel more part of their family. You know, I think so. Yeah, cool. And as far as amb- ambassadors go, how do you pick that kind of person, and, and what do you expect from them? So we hold an open application mostly every autumn um, where we invite people to submit an application where, and we ask them to tell us stuff like name, age, where they ride, what mountain biking experience they've got. But actually, I don't really care about what mountain, what mountain biking experience they've got. We, I, what, what I care is that they tell us what they're going to do for us and how they're going to help to promote the brand and I don't care whether people are winning races I don't care whether people are doing backflips on jumps the things that I care about are whether they actively promote the brand um, and deliberately and this is basically online and in social media and whether they deliberately kind of um, showcase the products in their best light, whether they, even, even if they're not riding, whether they're wearing kind of casual stuff off the bike, uh, whether they're friendly, whether they've got a good attitude. Um, 
whether they essentially act as a good representative of the brand. Mm. Um, we, I mean, we rely really heavily on our ambassadors for the bulk of our marketing, especially since Facebook algorithm changes and everything means that we aren't getting the same sort of reach as we were before. We really rely on um, people promoting the, the, the product. And I mean, that's why that's why they get free stuff or that's why they get heavily discounted stuff is so is in exchange for promotion um and we look for people that kind of understand that mm-hmm. i think and that it is a business and that while well, they're part of the kind of flair uh family and team flair they're also we're also relying on them to sell products for our business which is kind of the black and white of it yeah, but I think you're doing a good job of it, and obviously you've seen that it, it helps the brand. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, it's nice and having, I think it's sorry. It's nice having all different sorts of people act as ambassadors for you, all different ages, all different sizes, all different styles of riding, and I think that that helps to inc- make a kind of inclusive image of the brand, which is what we want it to be. Awesome. Yeah, I was going to actually say that. It's, it's nice. It's nice that you have such a, a range of different people because I think in today's environment, if you niche way, way down and, you know, a certain age group or, mm. you know, just downhillers or just XC yeah. or something, you're, you're going to struggle. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, you know, so that's cool. Right. I wanted to get and ask you a wee bit about the time you spend on it now. And we've kind of touched <laughs> on that a wee bit through it. Um, I kind of dread asking you this question, but is is flair a full-time gig for you <laughs> yes <laughs> it is yeah. yes absolutely good because i thought you were going to say no um no. <laughs> i work 40 hours a week as well no. and then i was going to say when oh, i first started i also worked part-time as a part-time at the bike shop and also part-time as a lecturer at nottingham trent uni but i slowly sort of didn't have time to do those things anymore but um yeah now this is every, now this is all all, all yeah. of it <laughs> cool and how much time would you spend on flare a week do you think um it's really hard to say because it's not consistent necessarily it's not like yeah. i mean my office is in the garden um my when we moved to sheffield my husband bought built a office in the garden which is brilliant but it's not like i come out at nine o'clock and then don't leave till five it's much more Mm-hmm. it's some it's it's much more pc so i might go and meet my friend kelly for a ride at, at lunchtime but then i also often work on the weekend or answer some emails at night which i'm really 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 trying not to do mm-hmm. um so it's much more fluid that's a really annoying phrase, but it's much more flexible than just kind of uh, saying how many hours. But I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not one of these sorts of um, business people who say, oh, I just, I need to wake up at five o'clock every day because I'm just so excited for the day. I've got a, mo- I, and then I work until 10 p.m. That's not me. <laughs> yeah. I. Um, I work a lot, but it's not, I don't think it's sort of ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, no, and I think 
it's the same for me in the podcast you know um it just depends what needs done at what time yeah exactly yeah you know and you know what i've actually started to do which i find really helpful Mm. i switch my internet off when i go to bed yeah that's i'm working up to that not on it yet (laughs) yeah because i would be my phone or just leave your phone outside or something but i'm scared of an emergency or something like that but (laughs) i i just switch my internet off then i'm not hearing bings and stuff coming through mm. all night because I have people from the States and all listen to the show yeah. and get in contact and, you know, will comment on social stuff and you're getting bings coming through on your phone and all at all times. Yeah. Right. Um, but I find it really good just to switch off from it. Yeah. I, I go to one bed. day I'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of hard. You know, I don't think people understand when you're an entrepreneur and you're doing your own thing. I know for me anyway i think about it all the time yeah it's so hard not to yeah or you'll be thinking about something else and that thought will then give you a new idea or a new Mm. kind of connection to something that was to do with the business so it's everything's just when you're so invested in it and also i bet when maybe more maybe less i don't know whether this is true or not but if it's a hobby business so if it's like you and I ride bikes so it's not just a business about something that you're not really interested in Mm. when it's something that's so part of your lifestyle it's very hard for things to not become connected to it yeah and and do you think um, again, that's a very interesting point because do you think because it's something you're passionate about anyway, do you look at Flair as a business or? Yes, but I, but I find do. it hard to think of myself as an entrepreneur. Right, know, okay, because you're doing something you love. Like, by definition, I am, but I find it hard to think of myself as one. Yeah, okay, I can see that. <laughs> yep, I can understand that, certainly. I never wear a shiny suit no but but that's one reason why you started you know i'll tell you a wee secret right when i left my last job one of the reasons i left it was so i would never have to wear a suit again yeah (laughs) yeah i actually donated all my suits to charity i don't have a suit i don't have a tie what do you wear to weddings i just go with my mountain bike gear (laughs) (laughs) they expect that from me now they don't expect to see anything else Uh, so how do you keep motivated Hannah how do you keep on top of things you know do you ever get to the stage where you're just like oh I need a week off from social media I need a week off from everything oh absolutely yeah um what's helped recently with with social media is scheduling all the social media so I'm so I'm not where it's not getting to oh four o'clock I need to put something on Instagram so I schedule all of our social media a week at a time and that wow, helps awesome. that's I that's using a brilliant website called later.com that I can't recommend enough mm-hmm. um and so that's all taken care of and actually I hate the job of scheduling social media but I love the fact that it's already done um I need to do that today, actually. (laughs) Um, So that's something that means that I don't really need to think about that for the rest of the week. Um, Other stuff is just, I mean, if it's all getting too much, I'll just leave the office and go back in the house and make a cake or 
take the dog out or do something else. Um, that if things are just getting on top of me, I'm not very good at kind of leaving things midway through being done. But after that kind of crucial task is finished, I'll just stop. And that's the benefit. That's the real big benefit of um, being in charge because there's no one telling me, oh, you need to be at your desk Mm-hmm. until five o'clock if if I can't I mean if I if I if I if stuff's getting on top of me I can't concentrate anyway I'm not doing very good work so I'll just stop doing it and then come back to it tomorrow um, yeah and, and and do you feel I know for me if I don't you know like show notes and stuff like I don't like doing show notes mm-hmm. right? I, I prefer talking I don't like writing yeah. <laughs> um and that probably comes across in the show notes, but we'll not we'll not worry too much about <laughs> that. Uh, but I almost feel like I beat myself up if I'm not, you know, I'll have something scheduled for the day and I'll say, right, I need to have these show notes done, blah, blah, blah. And if I don't do it or not, I really beat myself mm-hmm. up about it. Yeah. But like you say, you're better walking away when you and come to it fresh and ready to go. Yeah. Um, so yeah do, you, do you find that? Yeah, I do, absolutely. And also I find that the things that I'm really pushing back or the tasks that I'm really dreading takes so little time like scheduling Instagram which is I keep talking about because I need to do it later um <laughs> takes 20 minutes but I just really really don't like doing it um mm-hmm. so once it's done it's really not been a burden and then it creates it really lifts a burden for the rest of the week um, but it's something that becomes a much, much, much bigger task than it actually is. But also then that, then there's a benefit of having so many things to do all the time. I can, if there's something that I'm really not wanting to do, no one's going to, well, some things they will notice, but for a lot of the time, no one's really enforcing deadlines except me. So if I don't meet my own de- deadline, I really beat myself up about it, but no one's going to notice if we go a day without having an Instagram post. Um, And so that's something that I try and not give myself too hard a time about, but that I'm learning to. (laughs) I'm learning. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) No, I think it's just getting used to what works best for you and how you work the best. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's important. So um, one more, one more question just before I let you go. Um, what let me phrase this right let me think what i'm trying to say here what do you like best about having an online fashion store i really love um meeting people at events um i'm so excited for this weekend because it's the weekend of the year where we meet so many kind of both customers and just participants in the in the sport that it's such a and everyone's in such a good mood and it's just really, really fun to chat with people, see what they're about, see what they're doing, see what they like, see what they don't like. Um, and it's amazing seeing people, especially with Fort William, where we come back year after year, seeing people that maybe have bought a flare T-shirt last year and they're wearing it. Or it's, it's, it's really, really nice to see people in person. That's what I like the best. Yeah, cool. No, that's awesome. That's, that's very good. And, just on that point 
um, how can people get your stuff so online and you just go to shows is that yeah correct? yeah this year the only ones that we've got booked are this weekend and then the malvern's festival which i think is going to be awesome at the end of june um and then we may pop into some of the smaller ones but they're the kind of two big ones that we've got booked for this summer um other than that online is flareclothingco.com um if you want to check out any social media, Instagram is Flair Clothing Co. Me, myself, if you want to see like p- loads of pictures of my dog, uh, my Instagram <laughs> is at C Hannah. Um, C as in look at S E E. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Places uh, to check us out. Yeah, we'll get all them links off you and put them on the show notes yeah, so that people awesome. can, can check it out. Definitely. So, listen, Hannah, thanks so much for coming on the yes, show. I really you. enjoyed our chat. Yeah, me too. It was brilliant. And you, you seem to be well switched on there and love what you're doing. So, um, so happy days, and I hope <laughs> everything so. goes well for you. <laughs> <laughs> and I hope everything goes goes well this this summer season for you, and things go well for Flair and stuff. And thanks. Yeah, and have you any holiday, holidays planned? Are you going abroad or anywhere to ride or anything? Uh, we've not got any holidays going abroad to ride. We're going to Wales at the end of June, uh, which will be fun. And then uh, I'm going to, well, we're going to America to see my grandpa in August. Brilliant. What parts are you in? Uh, in New York. So going to New York City oh. for a couple of days and then upstate New York and see my grandpa cool, um, after that. So yeah, it'll be really fun. Get some sun in August once winter here arrives. <laughs> yeah, that'd be nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, Hannah, thanks so much. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, that was thank lovely you. to chat to you. All right, good luck in the future. Cheers. Bye. That's a wrap for episode 40, folks. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Hannah and Flair Clothing. It's a really interesting story how certain brands just start and um, she just seen a hole in the market and went for it and that's the way to do it you know and um, I hope everything goes well for Hannah in the upcoming summer months and that the brand goes from strength to strength so I just want to say thank you Hannah for coming on the show it was awesome to chat to you so thanks so much for that I really do appreciate it Hannah if you want to know more about Hannah's story or want to follow Hannah or get in contact just visit the show notes at mtb-tribe.com the links are on there to Hannah and you can get in contact via there also if you want to get involved more with the MTB Tribe podcast you can just simply visit the website www.mtb-tribe.com you can subscribe to the show there and get a little bit more info on what's happening and what's going on also I wanted to say a big congratulations to Owen Frenson who has won the free Dava Enduro entry and if you don't know about it I ran that over the last couple of weeks really you could you could enter and win a, a free entrance to the Dava Enduro worth up to about £48 so Owen for instance thanks so much you entered you won good lad that'll get you coming up from the south and hopefully get you around the Dava trails and um, I didn't actually know it but Owen is the founder and owner of the Emerald MTB blog so really cool um it's been going for a few years so thanks so much i didn't actually realize that own until you were the winner so cool and if you want to get in contact with 
own or the Emerald MTB. You can find that at emerald-mtb.com and check that out. It's good read and well worth tuning into. So Owen, thanks again for entering and everybody else that entered for the competition. Thanks so much. I really do appreciate it and shows the interest in the show and in the Dava Enduro. So I hope everybody enjoys that weekend. That'll be an awesome time for sure. So thanks folks. Again, if you want to stay in contact with the MTB Tribe podcast, you can find us on socials. On Instagram, we are at MTB Tribe and Facebook at MTB Tribe. Again, go on the website. There's a contact list there. You can uh, get in contact with me. Throw me out some emails if you would like to hear anything on the show or hear from anybody on the show. Let me know and I will try and sort that out for you. So folks, thanks so much for being here once again and I will speak to you next week for another episode of the MTB Tribe Podcast. Have a great weekend.